Welcome back to another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Among the many things that the global pandemic has revealed are the stark inequalities on which our system is built and maintained. How can we create a better world post-pandemic? I'll talk to three scholars whose work appears in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology, who offer some expert guidance. First, Tom McDell provides a glimpse at how a guaranteed basic income transformed some people's lives for the better in Ontario. Could it serve as a model for government policy in the future? Next, Kevin Schaefer reveals evidence that suggests that working from home has motivated some men in different sex relationships to shoulder more household responsibilities rather than less. Could greater exposure to household demands help address gender inequality in the domestic sphere? And in Committing Sociology, Joanne Jean-Pierre discusses the essays that she and co-editor Carl James vetted for their symposium on anti-black racism in Canada. They stress that beyond expressing anger and outrage, sociologists have to press for real structural change to create a future free of black oppression. But first, everyone seems to be talking about guaranteed basic income these days. What are its possibilities? Let's find out. Uh, My name is Tom McDowell, and I'm an instructor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Dr. McDowell and his co-author, Mohamed Ferrosi, have a research note in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. It's entitled, The Experiences of Social Assistance Recipients on the Ontario Basic Income Pilot. The Ontario Pilot was implemented in 2017 by the Liberal government at the time. It gave people with no or low incomes in several regions in Ontario a fixed income for three years, but the pilot was never completed. The Ontario Basic Income Pilot was cancelled in July 2018, along with all associated evaluative activities. So uh, my research colleagues and I were living in Hamilton at the time, one of the test sites, and we recognized that unless someone was able to capture the experiences of recipients, they would ultimately be lost. This was the largest basic income pilot uh, attempted in the world since the 1970s in terms of numbers who were enrolled in the pilot. So this was a significant pilot, and we felt that it was important to capture the evidence. And given the fact that we were in one of the test sites in Hamilton, we decided to take the opportunity to conduct both a survey and interviews with former recipients of the Ontario Basic Income Pilot. Good call. So what kinds of things did Dr. McDell and his team want to find out? We had a primary research question, which was essentially what was, generally speaking, the impact of of the Ontario Basic Income Pilot on those who received it compared with their experiences before they began receiving basic income. That would be the primary research question. But we we also had a series of secondary research questions related to uh, the experiences we heard from recipients on the pilot. So, for example, how was their health and well-being impacted? Uh, How was mental and physical health impacted? Financial security and affordability? Employment and educational outcomes? Also, how did the experiences of basic income recipients compare to experiences of those who previously had participated in the labor market? And directly relevant to the research note that we published in in your journal, how did it compare to experiences on other social programs, namely ODSP and OW? 
So, Dr. McDowell and his team set out to find the people who participated in the basic income pilot. They immediately ran into some challenges. One of the first difficulties is that it was impossible for us to establish a random sample because we simply didn't have access to a list of, of former recipients on, on the pilot. And so what that meant is that we had to engage in a public recruitment campaign uh, to try to access former recipients to let them know that we were conducting a study. So that, that obviously led to some limitations in terms of our findings. But we conducted a survey of which there were, so there were about a thousand uh, Ontario basic income pilot recipients in the, in the Hamilton region, so that includes Hamilton, Brantford, and Brant County. And we were able to access 217 former uh, basic income recipients from the Hamilton region for our survey. So 217 uh, participated in the quantitative portion, and then we had uh, about 40 recipients who uh, participated in longer form interviews, which use a mixed method approach. Uh, so we use the interviews as a means to try to affirm some of the findings from the survey, and, and we found that largely they did. The survey and interviews revealed that the extra income transformed the lives of many participants, notably those who were recipients of Ontario Disability Support. One of the major things was that the idea that individuals were going to receive basic income for a period of up to three years enabled recipients to take chances. So they were able to make long-term investments in themselves, such as going back to school, uh, investing in employment venture. We even had one recipient who had been work, doing gig work and who was afflicted with a mental illness who decided to run for political office. So providing people with opportunities like this to make long-term investments in their lives and, and to engage in long-term planning. Contrary to the common narrative, we found that recipients were arguably more employable than they were before the pilot because of all these additional benefits that were provided by basic income, improved self-confidence, the number of people went back to school. Just simply people were, were more able to participate in the labor market after the pilot was over. Uh, former OW and ODSP recipients told us that the unconditionality of the program led to reduced stigma as they no longer had to justify a particular health condition or that they were pursuing employment opportunities to justify uh, their need to government caseworkers. So that, that was uh, another significant finding. We found that those who were previously employed in the six months before basic income actually did better on a variety of indicators than those who did not. We hypothesized this was the case because formerly employed recipients received the dual benefit of both being able to leave dead-end jobs and the increase in their income levels and in improvements in their income security. So generally speaking, we found that the Ontario Basic Income pilot was working more or less as it was designed to. We affirmed findings from other studies that basic income did not lead to a mass exodus from the labor market, nor did it lead to a decline in work motivation. Recipients were generally happier, healthier, and more confident than they were before they began receiving basic income. So nearly everyone who participated in the Ontario Basic Income Pilot, we found, benefited in at least some way, and for many, basic income proved profoundly transformational. These are remarkably positive results, particularly when you consider that the Basic Income Pilot was cancelled before it could run its course. So, so our findings were that most of the recipients who we surveyed actually received the basic income for less than 17 months. There were some who received it for a period of up to 24 months because the pilot started in April of 2017. But for most, it was 17 months or less. So again, I think it speaks to the capacity of basic income to have positive benefits on people's lives, despite the fact that they only received it for a, a relatively short period of time. McDowell and Ferdosi's research note, of course, includes the results of statistical analyses that they conducted on their survey results. 
but it also includes some truly moving stories of what basic income made possible for some recipients. One story that really sticks out to me was a young man who uh, had tried to commit suicide several times in the past before receiving basic income. Uh, He was in his early 20s, uh, had been working part-time jobs, scraping by, had largely been living in poverty, had been living at home with his mother, who was also struggling to get by. Basic income gave him the time to step back, leave the uh, precarious employment, and to go back to school. And this has given him new meaning and a new lease on life. And it's completely re-inspired him and given him something to focus on. So that's an example of the kind of story that we heard over and over again from recipients, that basic income gave them a lifeline and an opportunity to engage in long-term planning in their lives. There was another family with a disabled daughter who were able to purchase a lift for their home so that their daughter could have improved mobility. So again, it's an example of how additional money provides additional opportunities for people to do things that they need to do. Or put, put differently, the extent to which people are restricted without some form of income security by a a lack of affordability. I I might give just one more example. There's another example of a woman who had cancer. She had just undergone surgery and she was able to afford a bed. She had been sleeping on the couch in her house and she'd given her bed up to to one of her children. So she was able to, to sleep more comfortably while she was recovering from cancer surgery. These are the kinds of examples that are meant to illustrate some of the, the transformational benefits that basic income had for, for some recipients. The Ontario Basic Income Pilot Program had a significant impact on the lives of these participants, even in its truncated form. Should a guaranteed income be part of the policies of governments post-pandemic? We end with some thoughts from Dr. McDowell. And I apologize for the drop in sound in this segment. We're at a, a period right now where basic income has entered the public dialogue as a consequence of CERB and pandemic supports. And I think one of the messages from the Ontario Basic Income Pilot is that we need to start thinking outside of the box in terms of nature and the complexion of the economy has changed and our employment simply insufficient to deal with, with these types of issues. And we heard that clearly through the interview process. So a basic income or something like it could have a profound impact from a social policy perspective. You can find the complete research note, the experiences of social assistance recipients on the Ontario Basic Income Pilot by Tom McDowell and Mohamed Farosi in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. As I'm recording this, I and my family are in lockdown in St. John's, Newfoundland. My spouse and I are both employed in jobs for which we work from home, and my daughter is attending high school classes remotely. The global pandemic has changed work and family life in many ways, but has it changed the gendered distribution of domestic labor? My next guest wanted to find out. Kevin Schaefer, I'm a Associate Professor of Sociology at Brigham Young University in the U.S. and also an adjunct Associate Professor of Health and Society at McMaster. Dr. Schaefer and his co-authors, Casey Schiebling and Melissa Milkey, have an article in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled The Division of Domestic Labor Before and During the COVID-19 Pandemic in Canada stagnation versus shifts in fathers' contributions. 
Dr. Schaefer is a specialist in parenting behaviors, so perhaps it's not a surprise that the massive shifts that families experienced with the onset of the pandemic got him wondering how it all affected gender relations in the home. It's informed in part by uh, my own experiences having my four kids shift their schooling at home and at the same time uh, trying to work from home uh, and my wife worked from home at the same time as well. So I think in part there was this personal aspect of it. I think the second thing that really mattered was at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a number of articles uh, typically in the popular press that asked the question, uh, what would the impact of the pandemic be on gender relations at home? And would the pandemic set back significant gains that women have made both at home and in the workplace due to this additional caregiving responsibility and just the massive amount of additional work that families had to face as the pandemic started. So there were a lot of think pieces about that issue, but not obviously a lot of empirical data on the question. And so our team thought that it would be a good opportunity to really dive into empirical data and figure out what the impact would be. So we conducted a survey with you know, over a thousand Canadians to really get a sense of, of what the uh, division of household labor was like at the beginning of the pandemic. So how did Dr. Schaefer and his team approach the issue of the distribution of household labor during the pandemic? Really the overarching research question that we looked at is, did the share of domestic labor change between before the pandemic started and in the midst of the pandemic when our data was collected, which was late April to early May of 2020? There really were two ways to think about it. And so we test these competing hypotheses in our paper. One hypothesis is, that there may be stagnation or even regression towards more traditional or historical trends in childcare and in housework, meaning that fathers would reduce the amount of work that they were doing in the household. The second possibility is what we refer to as the exposure hypothesis. The idea behind the exposure hypothesis is men will engage in more housework and more childcare when they become increasingly aware of the needs that exist within the household. So we consider both of these possibilities in our data analysis. It's a challenge to do research around household task distribution at the best of times, let alone during a pandemic. Dr. Schaefer explains how he and his team managed to obtain this information. There are really two common ways to study the share of household tasks. So one common way is through time diary data, where individuals are asked to keep a running schedule of their day and to indicate what they're doing at particular times during the day. In contrast to that approach, 
is the approach that we use, which is asking people about their perceptions of the equality of childcare and housework tasks in the household. And so we use that approach because research has shown that perceptions tend to matter more than raw time totals in terms of mental health and other outcomes. So we went with the perceptions of housework and childcare uh, fairness. That ended up being uh, a number of tasks. So we actually looked at five different tasks for housework, things like preparing meals, doing laundry, house cleaning, etc. And we looked at multiple uh, parenting outcomes as well. So things like providing for the physical care and needs of a child, um, helping them at bedtime, reading, playing together, organizing a child's day, enforcing rules, things like that. So we asked individuals to tell us how fair they thought the tasks were divided. And if there were an, it was an increase, no change or decrease in the share of tasks that fathers were doing between before the pandemic started and at the time that they the individuals took the survey. In choosing to measure perceptions of fairness rather than raw time data, Dr. Schaefer and his team knew they would likely find discrepancies in men's and women's assessment of paternal involvement in domestic labor. Indeed, previous studies have shown this. But did the data nevertheless permit them to test their hypotheses? Here's Dr. Schaefer. Um, number one, I think, uh, top line is that there are just pretty substantial gender differences in perceptions of fairness. Uh, that's not a new finding, but mothers and fathers just perceived fairness very differently. Finding number two is that in many, many cases, fathers were increasing their share of housework and increasing their share of childcare. Most dads were doing the same amount of work. And in many cases, dads were doing more work. The third finding is that as dads became increasingly exposed to the needs of their families through things like shifting your work from the workplace to the home, that was strongly associated with increases in the amount of childcare and housework that was being done. And that finding mirrors in many ways, the findings of research on flexible work arrangements, that research has found that dads who have those sorts of work arrangements do more housework and do more childcare. The same is happening here. Now, the difference obviously is we do not have the issue of people choosing the kinds of jobs or choosing the kinds of employers that allow them to have flexible work arrangements. This is literally flexible work arrangements out of necessity. And yet we found the same patterns. So I think that tells us something about the importance of dads having exposure to family needs. And it tells us something about gender progress that's happened within the home. Clearly, a long haul to go before there is true gender equality at home and at work. But I think this might give us some evidence that at least at home, that the pandemic might actually be an equalizing force, not a regressing force on gender equality. 
As social scientists continue to study the impact of the pandemic on social life, we'll continue to acquire new insights into how existing inequalities have changed or been exacerbated by the conditions wrought by the virus. How we then use that knowledge to inform the ways we live post-pandemic is the question. I am of the belief that we really have a couple of pathways that we could choose as we get closer to this pandemic ending. One pathway is to ignore the problems and the issues that the pandemic has exposed. We have option two, which is, you know, we learn some things out of it, but really focused at the individual level. And we're just focused on individual, what individuals have learned from the pandemic. And then we have option three, where we actually have a serious conversation as a society about what the pandemic exposed and ways to deal with the many social problems that have been exposed by the pandemic. I think hopefully that we go down this third route where we really have serious conversations about things like health inequality, where we have serious conversations about structural racism, where we have serious conversations about work and work family life balance. And I hope that one of those conversations is truly around gender equality at home and in the workplace, and that we can take lessons from this pandemic and formulate policies that really move us more towards the ultimate goal of equality at home and in the workplace. Find the complete article, The Division of Domestic Labor Before and During the COVID-19 Pandemic in Canada, Stagnation versus Shifts in Fathers' Contributions, by Kevin Schaefer, Casey Schiebling, and Melissa Milkey, in the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. This is not a time to commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology. And we've reached that point once again in the episode where we commit sociology and talk to contributors to the Committing Sociology section of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Joanne Jean-Pierre. I am currently an assistant professor in the School of Child and Youth Care at Ryerson University. In the November 2020 issue of the CRS, Dr. Jean-Pierre, along with her co-editor, Carl James, host a symposium entitled Beyond Pain and Outrage, Understanding and Addressing Anti-Black Racism in Canada. Dr. Jean-Pierre explains the impetus behind the symposium. It seems like there were a number of circumstances that made this symposium timely and relevant. First, there were protests in many countries following the death of George Floyd. There was increasing attention to the deaths of Black people after contact with police officers. But there was also a lack of recognition that this is not solely an American problem. While Canada has a different history, we have a history of slavery, segregation, and ongoing anti-Black racism as well that is often minimized or omitted in discussions, even in our own discipline in sociology. Most importantly, it was important to address the erasure 
or invisibilization of Black Canadian lives that had been lost following an interaction with law enforcement. I can name here DeAndre Campbell in April 2020. I can also name Regis Korkinski-Pake in May 2020. And finally, of course, we wanted to take the advantage of the possibility of starting a discussion following the CSA June 4th statement to further elaborate, further discuss on anti-Black racism and the experiences of African Canadians. The title of the symposium, Beyond Pain and Outrage, highlights the need for Canadian sociologists to not only acknowledge and respond emotionally to the anti-Black racism inherent to Canadian institutions, but to take real steps to eliminate it. I believe that in order for us to be able to recognize, detect, and address anti-Black racism, uh, it's essential that as Canadian sociologists, we avoid deflecting to the American context issues pertaining to anti-Black racism and start focusing on anti-Black racism experienced by Black Canadians here. It is also important because migration status alone, whether we're talking about Black immigrants or permanent residents, refugees or international students, all these migration statuses are not enough to explain the differential outcomes experienced by Black Canadians, nor is it enough to explain the subtle, democratic, and polite racism experienced by Black people across provinces, whether they are Anglophone or Francophone. It is important because as sociologists, we are capable or more, of more than an emotional response, and we should commit sociology in a way that furthers the ways we challenge anti-Black racism. The symposium includes six essays by Black Canadian sociologists living and working in regions across Canada. It was important to the editors to include a cross-national representation of perspectives. As a bilingual scholar myself, born in Quebec, having lived in different provinces, it was important for me that the symposium includes Black Canadian scholars work from different provinces. We had a chance to have one scholar who wrote in French as well. While most Black Canadians live in Ontario, it is important to include the voices from Black Canadian scholars from across the country in English and in French. And Dr. Colgings and myself were able to do that. Several of these scholars are actually working in departments of sociology outside of Ontario, but were not necessarily well known outside of their regions. So we can go from west to east. Dr. Maureen Kiika is an assistant professor in sociology at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And she wrote about how Black Canadians are often erased, sidelined, and how the deaths of several Black Canadians following interaction with the police shows how we are no longer able to minimize systemic racism. Dr. Temitope Oyola is an associate professor in sociology from University of Alberta. And he wrote about how Canadian sociology should engage and challenge police excessive use of force in Canada. Dr. Kevin Cozine is an associate professor in sociology from Brock University in Ontario, 
and he discussed the different responses of Black community members to protest and anti-Black racism along social class lines. Dr. Akwazi Owuzu Bempa is an assistant professor in sociology from the University of Toronto in Ontario. And he highlighted the importance of pre-sentence reports for more equity in the treatment of young Black offenders within the criminal justice system. Dr. Leila Sal is an associate professor in sociology from Université de Moncton in New Brunswick in the French language department. Uh, who talked about the realities of Black immigrant francophones in the labor market in the Maritimes. Finally, Dr. Ingrid Waldron is an associate professor in the School of Nursing at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, who discussed how anti-Black racism also affects the experiences of spatial violence that Black people experience, including environmental racism. I believe that these authors who discussed very different topics contributed immensely to the depth and breadth of the symposium. Find all the essays included in the symposium, Beyond Pain and Outrage, Understanding and Addressing Anti-Black Racism in Canada, in the Committing Sociology section of the November 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. We end with a few words of thanks from Dr. Jean-Pierre. I would like to thank Dr. Tracy Adams for working with us and helping us in terms of logistics. And I would like to also thank the CSA president, Jaube Chen, who invited us to prepare this symposium. It's greatly appreciated. And we've reached the end of another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, and I'll be back soon with more programs featuring conversations with scholars whose work appears in the CRS. So stay tuned. Now.